0: We're not against police officers.
1: We're against bad police officers. Our award-winning interview series, The Hard Part, continues next on the Public Radio Hour, as we hear from David Person of the Rosa Parks Day Committee about why they're requesting a federal review of the Huntsville Police Department. We're not against policing. We're against bad policing. What we saw
0: with the murder of Jeff Parker was the juxtaposition of good policing
1: and bad policing. This hour, we'll also hear about the latest from the Huntsville Chamber Music Guild, and the WLRH Sundial Writers' Corner celebrates three winners of the Huntsville Literary Association's Young Writers' Contest.
2: Gather around and tell you a tale that'll make your hair curl and your kitties wail.
1: Our weekly mix of special programs, homemade radio features, and community conversations, the Public Radio Hour, is next, right after this news update. This is the Public Radio Hour, a weekly mix of special programs, homemade radio features, and community conversations created in the studios of member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. I'm Brett Tannehill. Tonight, we're celebrating young writers and the performing arts, and also searching for context and a deeper understanding of one of our society's biggest challenges. Recent cell phone video that captures a man's legs being stomped by a Huntsville Police Department officer as he's being detained for resisting arrest is fueling an already loud chorus of voices calling for action. We'll talk with David Person of the Rosa Parks Day Committee of Huntsville, Madison County. The group has requested a Department of Justice review of Huntsville Police Department operations. Also this hour, Tennessee Valley activities continue to reopen and resume, hopefully providing some relief to all of us as the COVID pandemic drags on. And make no mistake, it's still a pandemic, with less than 30% of Alabamians vaccinated toward our state's goal of 70% total vaccination by July 4th. Folks, it's going to take a miracle to make that. But our performing arts scene is once again doing amazing things with some slight changes. On October 8th, legendary vocal group Chanticleer returns as the Huntsville Chamber Music Guild kicks off a brand new fresh season. Producer Dory Nutt talks with Robin Pesca and David Brown later this episode. So we'll have a mix of moods and tones in the next hour, but let's start with the celebration. The WLRH Sundial Writers' Corner, bringing you work from the Tennessee Valley's finest wordsmiths, is proud to present three poetry winners from the Huntsville Literary Association's Young Writers' Contest. We'll hear Zaina Kilidar, John Macri, and Brian McNeil read their prize winning poems. <laughs>
3: This is 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio, and I'm Dory Nutt, one of the producers of the Sundial Writers' Corner. This week's episode features some of our favorite poets, the winners of the Huntsville Literary Association's Young Writers' Contest. We'll begin with Zaina Kiladar, who took top honors in the Lower Elementary Poetry Division.
2: Travel by Zaina Kiladar I pack up to go. Ready for a trip. I am so excited. I could do a backflip. I get up to explore. So many places to see. No school, no homework. It's time to be free. Goodbye COVID. Welcome fun. Time to travel. There's so much to be done.
3: Zaina has just finished her second grade year at Madison Elementary and hopes to travel to Dubai to visit her grandparents soon. Next up, we have rising fourth grader John Macri, who has written a poem about a mythical beast that lives on a mountain near us.
2: The Beast of Mont by John Macri Gather round and tell you a tale i will make your hair curl and your kitties wail. Way up high on this here mountain, for years far more than I am countin', a beast looks top old was Listen up, it's a fright, and I'll explain so. Deep in the woods where the sun can't shine, past the end of the trails and the oaks and the pine, where the birds don't sing and the deer won't go, lives the mysterious bob turtle of Monseno. If you hear a rustle, don't turn away, as it'll be gone in a flash before you can say... Did you see a huge shell, furry tail, those really fangs of glowing eyes and claws like nails, reptilian feline part turtle part cat. Its shell like armor and built for combat. If you go looking you won't likely find, so scarce it's rarely seen by mankind. Hearing so keen with those big pointy ears and sense of smell that will leave you in tears. It'll smell you and run before you come near. You'll wonder, was the bob turtle really just here? If you do see it, don't stare, just run. Once provoked, it's fierce, your life could be done. So next time you're hiking to the end of the path, turn around. Don't bring on the bob turtle's wrath. Turn around quickly when you get to the end. Go back home and warn all your friends.
3: John loves running, reading, and playing musical instruments. He's already proficient on ukulele, guitar, and piano. He won the upper elementary division of the Huntsville Literary Association's Poetry Contest. Our last poet is Brian McNeil, who just graduated from Huntsville High School, where he was active in choir and theater. He'll give an introduction to his poem.
4: This poem was inspired by a poem I had written called The Beach House that tells the story of these two young friends that go down to a beach house during the summer. And this poem in particular chronicles the feelings of one of these young boys as they're there at the beach house. This is called Escapade with Poseidon. By Brian McNeil For days we called that house home, soaked bodies in salty brine and made the sun kiss our supple skin. These were moments where serenity revealed his face to me, moments when I couldn't distinguish the genesis of the joy that blossomed in the chambers and capillaries of this red fruit. Maybe. It was the way the music of the sea accentuated the sand between my toes, evoking memories of Nereids and sea gods. Maybe it was the way he glowed, body like a bronze Adonis, every little river in the world running down his skin, water droplets fragmenting lights into a halo around him. I thought of him as an angel. No. I thought of him as a god, and if you saw him, you'd agree. One day, we decided to dive together, air heavy in my chest as we swam beneath the waves. I watched him carefully, in awe with the way he called the water home, the way with how he seemed to belong here, a beauty among the fish. I called him a mermaid once, and he grinned at me saying that maybe the stories are true. On my escapade with Poseidon, I let this God's name resound on the folds of my tongue. Let this God's glory rock me like the waves of his crystal blue kingdom.
3: Brian is headed to Auburn University in the fall, planning to major in English with a concentration in creative writing. We here at Sundial are proud to present these young writers to the community and know that you will join us in wishing them good luck in their future endeavors. You can hear these three poems again by visiting our website, wlrh.org, and clicking on Sundial under the Programs tab. You can hear new episodes of Sundial every Monday morning at 9 here on Huntsville Public Radio.
1: This is the Public Radio Hour, a weekly mix of special programs, homemade radio features, and community conversations created in the studios of member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. I'm Brett Tannehill. The sparkly image of a growing, vibrant, intelligent, and inclusive Huntsville took a big hit following a pair of violent incidents in June of 2020, where peaceful social justice protesters were shot and tear-gassed by a riot-control squad in downtown Huntsville. Twice! Since then, a vigorous advisory review of hundreds of hours of evidence, much of it gathered by local citizens, found fault with the tactics and crowd control actions used during the protest. Also since then, the public's eyes continue to open wider and wider as documentation of other use-of-force incidents continue to surface, including two very recent incidents where city officials questioned the murder conviction of a Huntsville police officer who, in 2018, fatally shot a person threatening suicide as other officers worked to de-escalate the situation and video of a Huntsville officer violently stomping the legs of a man being held face down on the floor of a convenience store. That officer was fired. The officer convicted of murder remains on paid leave as he awaits a disciplinary hearing, a date for which has not yet been set. Now we may be headed toward a federal review of the Huntsville Police Department, as the Rosa Parks Day Committee of Huntsville, Madison County, has requested the department of, has requested the Department of Justice to take a closer look at what's going on. We spoke with committee member David Person. So, David, let's start with the most recent incident involving the Huntsville Police Department's use of force against citizens. I saw it on Facebook posted by your group, the Rosa Parks Day Committee of Huntsville, Madison County. And the video begins with a man apparently of color face down on the floor of a local convenience store with an officer on top of him appearing to struggle to control what's going on. And then within a few seconds of the video, more officers arrive. One of the officers is seen stomping several times on the person's leg as other officers pile on top and and apply handcuffs. Uh, Is that an accurate description of the video, and how did your group come into possession of that video? It is an accurate description of the video, and I don't know
0: that we actually ever had possession as such. But but to post it on
1: social media.
0: Well, it was someone else had posted it, and then it was forwarded to, to me and to other members of the group. Uh, I believe it was on um, the page of a person whose name I think is Bruce Taylor. Bruce Taylor, Bruce Young, something like that. I can't remember. But that was that was where um, I, I think our post was a repost of that. Okay. Yeah. And what was your initial reaction on, on seeing something like that? I was horrified to see the stomping. Um, I, I was concerned to see that someone was being— uh, apprehended and, and apparently, uh, you know, facing arrest in the way that it was occurring. But, but, what, was, but, but what was really horrifying was the stomping. It just seemed unnecessary uh, and a real excessive use of
1: force and consequently a violation of the person's civil rights. The Huntsville Police Department issued a statement following that saying the officer uh, had acted inappropriately. Uh, Initially, they came out and, you know, were hedging bets a little bit, it seemed like. Um, And uh, the most recent statement says the officer did indeed act inappropriately, acted outside of department policy, and will be referred to Chief Mark McMurray for a disciplinary hearing. What is your response to that? Does that give you confidence that this will be addressed properly, or what do you think about that?
0: I have zero confidence, and the reason I have zero confidence is that Chief Mark McMurray is the same person who affirmed a convicted murderer, Officer William Darby, after he was convicted of murder. So I have zero confidence. Now, it is quite possible that Chief McMurray, because of the pressure, that has been placed on him and his department and the scrutiny, it is certainly possible that they will do what I would certainly consider to be the right thing. Uh, now, I'm going to define that for you. In my mind, the right thing is the officer who did the stomping should be fired. He should be fired. And the reason I say, and and I and at this moment, I mean I I, I gotta be transparent with you, the committee has not issued a an opinion on what should happen to that officer. So right now, I'm really speaking as an individual. Though I believe that many of our committee members would agree with me, I believe that
1: officer should be fired. And and you mentioned a moment ago the word pressure, and that's something that is obviously taken on a completely different context with the rise of social media and people with you know having cell phones and cameras and being in a position to document things like this. Uh, what, what is your response to the, the rise of that and the, and people acting as citizen journalists and, and things like that and being able to document things going on in their community? Is this something uh, that is helpful? Is this something that inflames the situation? It, it seems like it's productive in a way but can also really spin out of control and be damaging in a way as well. Well, um,
0: I, I want to I answer that question, but I, I want to finish my other thought. I believe that this man should be fired, not the other officers, but the one who did the stomping, Brett. And the reason I believe that the, the officer who did the stomping should be fired was because he was the one who, in the video, was clearly using excessive force and did so when the others were not, as far as we can tell as far as we can tell from what we see and from what we know so far. And additionally, he made the decision to do so almost immediately upon coming on the scene. Nobody else was using excessive force, and that officer, whoever he is, decided to do so. Additionally, after he used the excessive force, he then stood there and didn't do anything else. So it was almost as though his sole purpose in entering into that scene was to use excessive force. Now I'm gonna answer your other question. We would not know about what happened to not only Mr. Hobbs, but we would not know what happened to Eric Garner, to Ahmaud Aubrey, to Walter Scott in South Carolina, and to many others, were it not for the use of cell phone camera video and social media. We would not have known how brutally Philando Castile was murdered in in Minneapolis. And I say murdered, that's the term I'm using in that particular case. I don't know that that's, I can't remember if that's how it was adjudicated, but that's what I'm calling it, a murder. Uh, We would not know. Were it not for cell phones, so I absolutely support uh, and am glad for the fact that citizens have access to the kind of technology that allows them to document whatever they see and or, or are experiencing, and then to post it on social media so that the world can see. I think it adds accountability. If we don't have any problem with security cameras or body cams, why would we have a problem with cell phones?
1: Perhaps you can speak to the, the point of context uh, because obviously it is useful to see these things, for everybody to see these things and have a deeper understanding of what's going on uh, and, and how it's happening. But at the same time, I would say on social media, people's minds aren't really changed that often by what they see. And a lot of times it would seem that Social media is used to reinforce people's pre existing notions or beliefs about what happens. And so, when something like this is seen, and as you said, there was one of a, a handful of officers who clearly was acting differently in, in the situation. And it paints a picture that may or may not be true on a larger scale. And I think that's kind of where it gets a little confusing. It's useful, but the question I put to you is. How, how is it useful? You spoke to that a little bit, but also how is that potentially um, not useful or per, uh, potentially damaging to the overall conversation that really needs to be had here? Well, I don't think transparency
0: is ever damaging. I think there should be more transparency. Not only do I uh, applaud and approve of and am grateful for the ability to use cell phone video, but I think body cam footage automatically ought to be released. I mean, we're talking about our tax dollars. You know, our tax dollars pay for the body cams. Those, the body cam footage ought to be released. I think security footage ought to be released. Uh, there are two courts. There's one where there is an ultimate adjudication, legal adjudication, and that's the, you know, the court that, that uh, w- you know, will prosecute uh, these cases if, if they come to prosecution. And then there is the court of public opinion. Both are important. They both have different needs and and have different uh, roles. And I think it's important to service both for us to have a democracy that is fully functioning and healthy. So, uh, again, I embrace without hesitation the idea of using cell phone video
1: and it being posted. The suspect's mother says that he suffers from mental illness, which seems to have been a recurring theme in a number of uh, incidents involving the so-called use of force tactics by Huntsville police. This includes the recent murder conviction of police officer William Mm -hmm. Ben Darby, who was seen on video shooting and killing a person who was threatening suicide, and interacting with people who have specialized mental health issues and challenges. Uh, is a known challenge for law enforcement officers in Huntsville and and everywhere else. Uh, What are your thoughts on this, and what have you heard, perhaps uh, through your group, uh, how local leaders are trying to address this in our community?
0: I think that the demonstrated inability of some police officers, not all, but some, to deal with people who are dealing with mental health crises or who have mental or physical disabilities is an enormous problem. People, Other people have been killed other than Mr. Jeff Parker in encounters with police or suffered at the hands of police officers. Uh, some years ago, Mr. William Frazier, who was 87 years old, as far as I know, he didn't have a physical or mental disability, but he was certainly an elderly man, was manhandled by police in a situation in which he was driving his car too slow. And they manhandled him and put him under arrest to the degree that this 87-year-old man had to be hospitalized. This is why we say that the culture of policing is broken in our city. This is not an indictment of all police officers. But it is an indictment of the culture and of the leadership. So my feeling is that there are two areas that have to be examined when it comes to the training of police officers and when it comes to monitoring police officers and accountability. Those areas are instances in which persons that are being Uh, that are interacting with police are people of color and also instances where they are people who are in mental crises or who are people with mental or physical disabilities. There has to be a focus on those areas. And what we are hoping, the Rosa Parks Day Committee, what we are hoping is that the Department of Justice will come to this city and investigate training leadership, protocols, policies in such a way that we can see a transformation of the culture of policing. Now, I want to add one other thing. We're not against police officers. We're against bad police officers. We're not against policing. We're against bad policing. What we saw with the murder of Jeff Parker, was the juxtaposition of good policing and
1: bad policing. There Almost were happening simultaneously.
0: Absolutely. We had two police officers who were there trying to de-escalate a situation where a person was threatening suicide and called 911 himself. They're trying to de-escalate it. Then we have Officer Darby who comes on the scene and in less than 30 seconds, I think less than 15 seconds, decides that he's got the better solution, and that solution is to kill Mr. Parker. That was bad policing. In fact, bad is not a strong enough word.
1: And that speaks back to the question I asked earlier regarding context. Mm-hmm. Um because in both of those incidents that you described, it was almost happening simultaneously. You have what should be happening you know especially in in the case of uh, officer darby and then what shouldn't happen yes. And it seems that it's so easy to lose the context and if you're, if you're one way or the other on it, it reinforces what you think. And to me, that, that is the dangerous part because people fail to look deeper and understand these deeper issues that you, you've been talking about uh, over the past few minutes. What can people do to make sure that they keep things in context and that they think deeper about what they are seeing on social media, instead of having this instant emotional reaction to it?
0: Well, I think, I think all of us, no matter what position we take on these issues, have to be reminded to see the humanity of the people involved. And that includes the police officers. Policing is a hard job. It's not an easy job. Um, but having said that, police officers also have an obligation to act and live at a higher standard. It's no different than what parishioners expect of their ministers or their, or their rabbis or their imams. You know, uh, w- there is a higher standard of behavior and judgment that, it is, that is expected. We expect the same thing out of our teachers and our principals. We expect that when parents are raising children that they will be responsible. Why would we expect any less of our police officers or of our police chief? This is why we're calling for the firing of our police chief. Our police chief has not demonstrated over the course of at least a year, if not longer, he has not demonstrated the kind of judgment, the kind of temperament, the kind of understanding of the humanity of the people that he is supposed to be policing that should be required of him. Otherwise, he would, not have, he would not have affirmed an officer who was convicted. Officer Darby. Officer Darby, who was convicted of cold-blooded murder. And by the way, the district attorney, Rob Br- Broussard, who, f- who filed the charges against Officer Darby and, and led the prosecution, he's not a flaming liberal like me. He's a law and order guy. Rob Broussard saw, though, that there was a problem with this. So did the grand jury, and so did the trial jury. And then we have the mayor and the police chief coming after the conviction, saying that they disagree with the conviction and they affirm the officer. How do you affirm a convicted murderer? Under any circumstance, how do you confirm an convicted murderer? It seems to me when you do so, you are losing sight of the humanity
1: of the people that you are charged with policing. You're listening to the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. We're talking with David Person of the Rosa Parks Day Committee of Huntsville, Madison County. We'll be back with more of this conversation right after this break.
5: Next time on City Arts and Lectures, Samin Nosrat, star of the television series Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, talks to Jessica B. Harris, the preeminent authority on the culinary culture of the African diaspora. Netflix has just made a documentary series based on Harris's book, High on the Hog. That's next time on City Arts and Lectures on this public radio station.
3: Catch
1: City Arts and Lectures here Thursday nights at 8 on 89.3 HD1 WLRH. You're listening to the Public Radio Hour here on 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. We're talking with David Person of the Rosa Parks Day Committee of Huntsville, Madison County. David, a a moment ago you referenced the Department of Justice. Uh, Indeed, uh, your group has filed a request for the Department of Justice to come to our community and perhaps investigate some of the issues that you have talked about. Could you tell us more about this request uh, and the process that, that may result from it? Well, we have done, uh, we have taken the first step, which was to make a
0: formal request. Uh, and that, that letter was released to the media. I'm sure you probably have a copy of it. And, um, and so we are waiting to hear uh, a response. Uh, in the meantime, as we wait, uh, you know, we are individually, uh, certainly, and, and even as a collective, we are going to be uh, uh, making uh, future plans. Uh, and also, I'll say um, we're in contact with other people who can help us to um, extend our 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 connection with the Department of Justice. So we are we are we are doing everything that we have the resources to do right now. We're doing everything possible to try to ensure that the Department of Justice. Uh, receives our request favorably, and will act on it. And, and we believe that, um, that if they do so, and do so in a timely fashion, that it would be beneficial to our city. Uh, we should all as citizens be concerned about the fact that police officers have been on the street, may still be on the street, who are of a mindset that says they can within seconds determine, literally determine the fate of another person without real consideration of the overall circumstances. And that's what we saw with the, with the murder of Jeff Parker. I believe that's what we've seen with the stomping of Mr. Hobbs. And, and I would also suggest that even the militarization of the police that uh, Chief McMurray has overseen and that was demonstrated very, uh, very unfortunately and brutally a year ago June, uh, all are indications that there needs to be a change. There needs to be a change in the culture of policing and we
1: all ought to be concerned about that. Aside from the examples that we have discussed so far, we obviously have also recently passed the one-year anniversary of two violent encounters between uh, social justice protesters and law enforcement that happened uh, in June 2020 in downtown Huntsville. And given the various things that have transpired recently and over the past year, It feels hard to say that we've made any progress here. What has there been progress made? What is your what is what would that progress look like? How would we know? I think that's a great question. And I think I think the answers
0: lie in first and foremost, the approach to policing uh, has that? I think the questions we ought to be asking, Brett, is: Has the have the has the approach to policing changed? Has the has the articulated positions of the mayor and the chief of police changed? Um, we are seeing uh, some small indications that perhaps it's possible that a change is occurring. Uh, I'll give you two examples. I'll give you three examples. One example is this statement that was released this week indicating that the police investigation, internal investigation, found fault with the officer who stopped Mr. Hobbs. So perhaps it remains to be seen, and I'm not optimistic, as I said earlier, but I would love to be wrong. I would love for the police chief to make a determination that this man needs to be needs to be terminated. We'll see if that happens. The second thing that we've seen that I think um, indicates perhaps that there's some progress is that uh, when the uh, when there was uh, well, it was actually last night the uh, the march that was conducted last night. And just for clarification, this interview is being conducted uh, June fourth, right? The march that was conducted June 3rd downtown, the march and protest that was conducted uh, June 3rd, the evening of June 3rd, uh, was took place without incident. In fact, there was, uh, I saw on Channel 19, I wasn't there, uh, but uh, I was at home working, but my understanding from the news report on, uh, that I saw on Channel 19 is that there was barely any police presence there at all, if any. At Correct. All. So... You know, you might say that that's an indication of progress. And certainly there was no violence. There was no destruction of property. So, uh, again, you know, that's that's indicative of progress. Thirdly and lastly, I have heard, and I don't know that it's been repub- uh, uh, reported publicly because I haven't seen it anywhere, but I have heard through the grapevine, as we like to say, that uh, the, uh, the position of associate police chief has been filled, and then it's been filled by an African-American man. Uh, for those who don't know, the previous occupant of that office was an African-American, Corey Harris. Uh, Mr. Corey Harris, and I don't know that that's even been made public, but Mr. Uh, Corey Harris has, uh, is now re- uh, retired um but uh my understanding is that his that his um that his office uh or that he's been replaced by another uh african american officer uh now if that is all true well i know the part about um harris retiring is true but if if uh if it is true that he's been replaced then um you know, by an African-American, I would say that's a sign of progress. Now, you may say, well, why? Why does he have to be African-American? Uh, well, I would say that because of the, um, because of the composition of our city population, uh, at least one of our associate chiefs needs to be African-American. I'm not saying they all do, but at least one of them does. Uh, we have about 30 percent of our population in our city is African-American and another 10 percent are other people of color. Uh, last at least the the data that I looked at recently. So for the sake of representation, absolutely, you know, representation matters, especially in the context in which we we exist, where for literally centuries, representation was not uh, a priority, and it was part of what allowed this country to be what it was when it comes to the indigenous people and to black people and to other people of color. And, and even, we, you, you might argue, even for that matter, for women and others, uh, uh, LGBTQ people, representation absolutely matters. Representation helps to inform the power structure and the bureaucracy of the needs and the concerns of all of those being represented. If everybody is—if if, if leadership is homogeneous— only one thing and whether that one thing is white males or white females or black females or black males or whomever then you don't have a sense your bureaucracy your government is not going to function in a way that's sensitive to everybody diversity matters
1: and this interview uh dear listeners is going to be part of our continuing series called the hard part as we try to foster discussion uh on this issue and david person thanks for joining us uh And as we hope people continue to think about this on a deeper level and and have conversations on a deeper level, what do you think is the hard part of that conversation when people are really trying to dig in and maybe even challenge their preconceived notions about what they think about things? What, What do you think is the hard part of that conversation?
0: Listening. Listening and empathizing. And it's a challenge we all have to confront all of us it's hard to get out of your own head it really is oh absolutely absolutely and yet i think it is uh it is paramount i I think about as we close brett i think about um dr king's uh one of dr king's sermons uh which is one of my favorites loving your enemies and he talks in this um, he talks in this sermon about the humanity of every person even the person that hates you and he said that we have to cultivate within us, within ourselves the ability and the, and the inclination to look for the good, even in the person that hates us, you know, or the person that is our uh, opponent, uh, the person with whom we disagree. And uh, so that's the challenge we face. And, and to do that, you have to listen and you have to empathize. David, we appreciate you stopping by. Anything else you'd like to add? It's a pleasure to be here and I commend you and WLRH for examining the hard part.
1: I was speaking with David Person of the Rosa Parks Day Committee as part of our continuing conversation about social justice in Huntsville. Our interview series is called The Hard Part and you can find all the conversations at WLRH.org then look under news for The Hard Part. We're making context a big part of these conversations, so let's provide some additional information about things that were just discussed. You may have heard a reference to Philando Castile, shot to death in Minneapolis during a routine traffic stop. The officer who fatally shot Castile back in 2016 was acquitted of all charges. In Huntsville in 2015, Huntsville Police Chief Mark McMurray was promoted to his current position to replace Police Chief Lewis Morris, who retired. And if you heard in the interview a reference to HPD's only Deputy Chief of Color, Corey Harris, who just retired from the force, here's a little more background on that position. In the same ceremony where Chief McMurray was sworn in as chief in 2015, Corey Harris was promoted to Deputy Chief to replace Sherry Jackson, I reached out to Huntsville Police to see who was currently holding this position and was told an announcement was expected very soon. We also reached out to Huntsville Police to continue their inclusion in our series and hope to speak with them again soon. This is the Public Radio Hour, a weekly mix of special programs, homemade radio features, and community conversations created in the studios of member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. I'm Brett Tannehill. You're listening to international opera singer, co-founder of Twickenham Fest, and native of Huntsville, Susanna Phillips. The Adieu is the last of a triptych of songs based on poetry that follows the life of a relationship from its beginning to end, all happening in a single day. The verses speak of impermanence and fickleness and changeability that tampers with our lives. Ah, as if we need more reminders of that. But it's been great to see things opening back up with a renewed sense of awareness. On October 8th, the Huntsville Chamber Music Guild opens a brand new season with legendary vocal group Chanticleer. Susanna Phillips performs February 11th. Morning Blend host Dori Nutt recently spoke with Robin Pesca and David Brown from the Huntsville Chamber Music Guild. Let's jump into the middle of their conversation.
3: That was Susanna Phillips joined by pianist Myra Huang, singing Adieu by Gabrielle Fauré. And as good as this CD is, Susanna, like any superstar, is even better in person. you want to get your tickets for this as soon as you can because I'm sure it will be a popular concert, one of the ones in the season presented by the Huntsville Chamber Music Guild.
5: She's not only a great, you know, musician, but she just has such a stunning onstage presence. She She's does. So personable. I mean, she just you know draws people in.
3: Here's here's my motto about Susanna Phillips. <laughs> she never disappoints. And at some point, you even begin to feel sorry for other people on the stage <laughs> with her. I mean, my family has a uh, I guess our hobby is traveling to hear Susanna sing. We um, as many people here in Huntsville, we've seen her sing in New York and Santa Fe, uh, different places in Birmingham, and she always stands out as the um, star of the entire show. I would love to see her at the <laughs> Met. We
5: went to uh, Santa Fe one summer when she was mm-hmm. there, and to Birmingham. I think we went to Birmingham we,
3: together. That we one. did, yeah, David, yeah, yeah. and saw her sing Samuel Barber's yeah. Knoxville. So we're sort of Susanna groupies. Right? Yes. <laughs> oh, it's, it's great fun. I, I recommend it for everybody, but be on the lookout for tickets for that concert because it will be very, um, very popular with the, the crowds here in Huntsville. Okay, so we're well into the spring of 2022 now, this season of the Huntsville Chamber Music Guild coming up, and you have Sharon Isbin. The world just famous guitarist but
5: guitar. I mean, just a remarkable musician. You know, this is a woman who is in her early sixties now. She's oh. been touring internationally since she was a teenager. Oh. <laughs> and I think it's very notable. We did notice, you know, for years, maybe fifty or so years, um, the publication Musical America. Uh-huh. Every year they choose their their different artists uh-huh. of the year. And as long as a career as she has had last year for twenty twenty, they named her their International instrumentalist. Up the I year.
3: had no idea she was that age because yeah, I was. have a relatively new CD here by her, and oh, she's, she's still going beautiful. Strong, you know. And and her playing just gets better and better with each yeah. CD, and her collaborations are very oh, creative.
5: I think it a half hour talking about you know all of her Grammy Awards and all of yeah. her accolades over the years. Um, She actually founded the guitar department at Juilliard. Oh, my gosh. uh, And and to this day is the only guitar instructor that they have ever had at Juilliard. I mean, it's
3: just remarkable. (gasps) just remarkable. And she's the first guitarist to be named... that award the musical yes uh, for
2: the musical instrumentalist in of right. the year right. yeah
3: i noticed somewhere uh, one of the years that she won a grammy 2010 mm-hmm. um and she's won several but that year she was the only classical artist to perform on the grammys you yes. know usually it's all popular music she's the
5: only guitarist who's ever recorded with the new york philharmonic
3: <laughs> oh my gosh
5: <laughs> and i you know i'm going to embarrass myself a little bit but when we were thinking about booking her i thought mm-hmm. well you know Guitar. I mean, it's going to be really sufficiently miked. And they were very nice. Her management was very nice. They didn't laugh at me or anything. They said, you know, we have miked her in the Musikverein in Vienna, (laughs) and the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam, (laughs) and Symphony (laughs) Hall in Boston, and various places. We We think she'll be fine in Huntsville, Alabama.
3: I don't know. (laughs) Oh my gosh! Well, I'm I'm so looking forward to this. For those who have never heard her, let's let's take a moment. This is a music show, after (laughs) all, Morning Blend, and I'd like to play a lot of music. Let's take a moment to listen to Sharon play a song by Leo Brower. that was music of leo broward this this was played by guitarist sharon isbin one of the artists engaged for the huntsville chamber music guild's season beginning this coming fall the fall of 2021 and as we go through the whole season we've gotten to the end of this fabulous season I, i guess it ends in 2022 Closing the season will be rock star pianist <laughs> Olga Kern. She became famous when she won the gold medal at the Van Cliburn competition. And then she's she's also started her own piano competition. Uh, a few right? years
5: ago. Yeah, I think it's maybe in Albuquerque, somewhere in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, she was the first woman. I think that was 2001 Van Cliburn competition. I'm not positive. Uh, I'm but, not sure. But uh, she was the first woman to win the gold medal there in like oh. 30 years. Oh. Since Christina Ortiz had won it you know, decades ago decades earlier. Uh-huh. And we've had her before, and this is, she's just a powerhouse pianist. Mm. Oh, it was
3: it was just maybe three years ago? I remember hearing it, maybe three or four yeah. years ago. Yes, yeah, it's longer than that, because okay. it's when, yeah, it's 2017 or okay. 16, okay. and she is just dazzling. She on was, stage. yeah, oh, yeah she was, and I'm sure she still is. And, and
5: she has a young son who's apparently also a very talented pianist, who's been through at least part of the Juilliard program, and he's going to be coming with her.
3: He'll uh, be playing with her? I believe so, yeah. Oh, my gosh. At least at the educational events. Oh, okay. Okay. His name is Vlad. Vlad. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. (laughs) Well, Well, David, as a pianist, what do you think it is about Olga Kern that makes her playing special?
5: Well, um... It doesn't hurt <laughs> that she's a, a very dramatic presence on stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's just gorgeous, you yeah, know, mm-hmm. and that doesn't hurt. But um, her technique is just affordable. I remember one of the times that we had her here, it was just one Mount Everest. <laughs> <atmosphere>. <laughs> it was Mark, Rachmaninoff and Balakidev, and uh, mm-hmm. they were all just monster pieces, mm-hmm. and she... She just was totally unfazed by them. She's just extraordinarily powerful pianist.
3: Well, and even in the simple and elegant pieces, Mm. I guess no pieces are really simple, but simply elegant. A C
5: major scale is not easy.
3: (laughs) 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 No, not at all, not at all. Well, let's listen. We're going to listen to a little music uh, performed by her, and we're going to start with just. Just a few seconds of Schubert's well-known impromptu, which is one of those simply elegant pieces, and you can hear her, her lyricism, and then we're going to fade that down and listen to a short Allegro Vivace from Samuel Barber's Sonata for Piano, Opus 26. So you can see the, the variety in her style. Here we go. That was the Allegro Vivace from Samuel Barber's Sonata for Piano, Opus 26, played here by Olga Kern, one of the featured artists for next season's Huntsville Chamber Music Guild series. True question. Okay. Who, gave,
5: who gave the world premiere of the Barber Sonata?
3: Oh, David. <laughs> <laughs> Can you answer? <laughs> Have you got no, your hand I'm up already? I did not. <laughs> okay, <laughs> David, back oh, to you. Horowitz. Really? Horowitz, yeah. Gosh, well, when, when this came on, you said, "Oh, that is devilishly difficult <laughs> to play." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But
5: yeah, Olga can do just about anything she wants to. Well, <laughs> it,
3: it, yeah, really. From these short excerpts and pieces we just heard, you heard the variety in her touch, mm-hmm. and and that's that's Olga Kern. So. Mm-hmm really looking forward to this great season that you have planned. Well, we'll be reminding you again, and I'm sure there will be PSAs for each one of these concerts as they come along. Uh, Maybe even interviews with somebody else from the Chamber Music Guild or the musicians themselves. Uh, Sometimes that has happened, uh, that they come in and talk to us the Mm -hmm. day, which has been very exciting. I met some marvelous musicians from around the world. And pretty much everybody turns out to be very nice and great fun we have a good time talking here the bigger
5: they are the nicer they are the f- saying goes
3: sometimes. <laughs> well maybe that's true I, I don't know everybody seems pretty nice to me they yeah. seem happy to be here in Huntsville I know Huntsville always puts on a big show for these artists uh, great crowds uh, enthusiastic audiences and, and I think all the artists are, are pleased to be here
5: well we appreciate all that WLRH does to promote artistic events and other events in the community it's a real resource that we're Lucky to have.
1: Thanks to Morning Blend host Dory Nutt and her Huntsville Chamber Music Guild guests Robin Pesca and David Brown. Thanks to David Person from the Rosa Parks Day Committee and we look forward to continuing exploring the hard part of our social justice conversations. Also congratulations to Zena Kilidar, John Macri and Brian McNeil. The first three winners our Sundial Writers Corner is celebrating from the Huntsville Literary Guild's Young Writers Contest. All the best to you and yours. Thanks for tuning in the Public Radio Hour here on Huntsville Public Radio.